Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we talk about directed energy with Christopher Barry, Principal Engineer for the Directed Energy Weapons Program in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, the Electronic Warfare Directorate. All right, before I introduce Chris, I just want to set the discussion up by mentioning that it's been great to see over recent years the electromagnetic warfare community and the directed energy community come together with greater collaboration in programs and efforts. I know from the AOC perspective, we have a good partnership with the uh, Directed Energy Professional Society, DEPS. We have a lot of exchanges there. There's also a lot of efforts at the local level and uh, at local agencies on the ground in the U.S. and around the world. And it's it's a trend that's moving in the right direction and one that's been long overdue. Uh, So it's really great to see that. I had the opportunity to sit down with Chris uh, in January, and shortly after the recording of the interview, the AOC's Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance came out with its feature story for January, which just so happened to be on direct energy weapons and specifically high-powered microwave systems, HPM weapons. The title of the article is High Power Microwave Systems Getting Much, Much Closer to Operational Status, written by Barry Manns. And the article does a great job of giving just an overarching history of HPM weapons that dates back much further than I even thought, back into the, the 50s and 60s. And so it was really interesting to see the ebb and flow of the tech development that took place over the decades and and how it's getting closer once again to operational status. And then he puts it into context uh, in current operations, taking a look at Russian Ukraine. He specifically looks at the, the drone strikes that Russia is conducting against Ukraine and Ukraine's efforts to counter those using surface-to-air missiles, which, of course, increases the cost of engagement dramatically. HPM weapons then course, offer a much lower cost alternative that provides immediate operational relevance uh, to, to conflicts such as what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. He takes a look at that in, in great detail. So highly commend the article. Again, it's High Power Microwave Systems Getting Much, Much Closer to Operational Status by Barry Manns. It's in the January edition of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance. Uh, and you can get that at jedonline.com or through the AOC website at crows.org. So with that, I'm pleased to welcome to the show uh, Chris Berry. Again, he is the Principal Engineer for Directed Energy Weapons in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Sustainment, the Electronic Warfare Directorate. Chris has 22 years' experience developing directed energy weapons across the life cycle. Prior to his current post, he was the Portfolio Manager for Laser Weapon Systems at Naval Surface Warfare Center, Dahlgren Division. In this capacity, Chris worked on numerous programs, including 
the Navy High Energy Laser with Integrated Optical Dazzler and Surveillance, known as Helios, the Optical Dazzler Indicator, known in the Navy as ODIN, as well as the Airborne High Energy Laser, a program from the Air Force Special Forces Command, SOCOM. Prior to this assignment, Chris was the Integrated Product Team Lead at Dahlgren, where he worked on programs including the Navy Laser Weapon System, known as LAWS, as well as the Directed Energy Ground-Based Air Defense Future Naval Capability. So we'll be touching on many of these programs here today, and I can't think of a better guest to provide us a state of DE here on From the Crow's Nest. So with that, I am pleased to welcome Chris Berry to From the Crow's Nest this afternoon. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Ken. Thanks for having me. During the intro, you know, one of the things I talked about was, you know, over the last few years, really seeing the electromagnetic warfare and directed energy communities coming together, you know, a little bit, the, the synergy between the two communities has really kind of taken the next step. And that's something that we've been wanting to see for a long time. And so it's, that's been really rewarding. And with, I think that synergy has been, you know, kind of an acceleration of a lot of milestones in the directed energy portfolio. So wanted to have you on the show. And I think just to start off, I wanted to kind of get your top level perspective on what is the state of directed energy here as we're early in 2023. What is kind of the the state of DE today? Yeah, so that's a pretty good question. And, and it was a, a very busy calendar year 22. I can uh, touch on some of those highlights. Uh, but just to answer that first question first, uh, I think today we are sitting at a point where we have multiple, across all services, multiple fielded or fieldable prototypes that are getting warfighter interaction, having opportunities to test overseas in theater, do experimentation overseas in theater. We're seeing some operational successes in that. Uh, so we're really at the point now where we, I, I believe we transitioned out of the laboratory. We are touching on the hands of the warfighter. Uh, and I think we're at the point now where we're, we're ready to start scaling up and have capability and quantity. And each one of the services has taken a hard look at it, where that fits within their budgets. And it's just a matter of, of fitting in the priority and demonstrating that we have a capability worth investing in that scaling capability. So it, it, it's coming. I think uh, the Army's probably ahead of the other two services in, in demonstrating that, where they are, they are procuring multiple units of these prototypes at a time, putting it in the hands of their warfighter, and have a full transition pro- process and path to, to take these prototypes and hand them over to the PEO that can then go off and, uh, and, and develop and scale or purchase and scale. You know, coming out, there's been a lot of, you know, milestones last year and what you're looking for. What are some of the other milestones in the past year in 2022 that caught your attention in terms of the progress that Direct Energy has made? I think one of the highlights for me in this past year was uh, in February, we were able to shoot down two surrogate cruise missiles at White Sands Missile Range with what's called the Layered Laser Defense System. That was a couple of years coming together, a very compact laser weapon system that the Navy helped invest into with IRAD from Lockheed Martin. And it, it shows the first time we've been back to the point of taking out these very fast, very hard targets since the 90s. And that's a pretty big milestone for the DE community as a whole as we look towards making sure we're building weapons that are relevant to today's fight, are relevant to the kinds of targets that the warfighter needs to be worried about. Uh, so to, to grow from that that demonstration into the capabilities on multiple other programs, I think is going to be very important in the, in the coming years. 
one of the frustrations I think over many years has, and you alluded to this earlier, was this notion of kind of transitioning out of the lab. You know, there, there seemed to be a lot of advances, but it was kind of stuck in the lab and, you know, you wanted to get directed energy into the field. There was some early success with some Navy programs, you know, several years ago. But now you mentioned the operational success. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, from your, you've been involved in directed energy now for 20 plus years. You've seen it, you know, the the successes and frustrations of the lab. You've seen the transition and now some of the successes in the operational out in the field. Could you talk a little bit about how that has changed the way that we look at directed energy in DOD now that we have operational success to kind of hang our hat on a little bit? And what effect has that had on the work going on in the lab in, in terms of kind of what's in the pipeline? Right, right. I think the the typical directed energy lab scientist that you would imagine in almost a meme setting is in his laboratory. He cares a lot about what he's developing and wants to make sure that he, he hits some metric of power or energy in his output, and that should affect something in the field, and he's excited about that. Where we're at today is is now taking that same person, putting him sitting next to a warfighter who says, that's nice, but I can't turn these seven knobs to make that thing do what I need to do. Help me get to a place where I've got a single button I can push, and, and we're doing that. We've reached... Uh, a point across again all these prototypes have warfighter interfaces that are that are designed based on feedback from those warfighters and are working through the process of being really capable in the field under reduced manning not a phd physicist operating it but uh, an e2 and e3 enlisted person operating the system is has been the, that transition over the last couple of years and it's really helped us to to add a whole nother depth of dimension into our development process. So we have to think about things differently. We have to go out and get this feedback from the warfighter and it makes the product better. It makes the product closer and, and ultimately exactly what the warfighter needs. That's great to hear because, you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about advanced technology, kind of the next generation capability, we sometimes don't talk enough about kind of, you touched on the operational relevance of some of this technology. And we've seen this in electronic warfare. And this is one of the things that I think, you know, historically when our communities talk, it's like the EW community can kind of bring to the direct energy community in terms of the operational experience. But this notion of making sure it's operationally relevant, it works great in a lab, it tests well, it hits metrics. But once you get in the field and the heat of the fight, certain things might not work the way you want it to work or work as efficiently, or maybe it's not as warfighter friendly, and and getting that experience in the field is is critical to kind of sharpening that capability so it can actually do what it should be doing and what's been tested to do. Right, right. So a big piece of that is the environmental piece, right? I mean, the systems that we've been testing over the last several years in desert-type environments and theaters had to withstand temperatures that, frankly, we, we hadn't even considered back here in the United States. And those yeah, that that's all part of military standards, and you're supposed to meet those. But the scientist in the lab is used to his air-conditioned laboratory. So, big step forward in being able to harden these systems for that sort of environment. The other piece of that is to make sure we are going against those relevant targets and targets that really matter to the warfighter. We can take our time to develop a capability against a specific, we'll say maybe a tactical military-type UAV. That's where my first program laws spent a lot of time on. But that threat evolved very rapidly into what we see today is, you know, asymmetric, non 
tactical UAVs that are basically commercial systems that are being modified very quickly. Uh, so, so to be able to manage that changeover and be relevant against those targets as well as the uh, the military targets, something we were able to do, and I think something that the technology been able to do, but it does require some agility and, and motion. One of the big milestones we reached this past year in the laser scaling capability that uh, OST Research and Engineering has been funding is to get back to laser powers relevant to going up against fast-moving targets such as cruise missiles. So we're at the 300-kilowatt class now on on multiple of these programs, and that puts us back in the door of being able to provide capability not against not just against these slow, slow and low fl- threats, but some of these much harder targets that the the services are struggling with and our adversaries are, are frankly moving out on very quickly. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the achievement of the 300-kilowatt class of laser weapons, because I, I'm not a scientist, as pretty much every listener on the show knows by now. And when you talk about you know directed energy, there's a lot of that falls in underneath that umbrella of directed energy, you know, including RF, high-power microwave, high-energy lasers. And then when you get into that, you have different power classes and so forth. So can you put in perspective, you know, you, you, you mentioned that 300 kilowatt class kind of gets you through the door of the next uh, kind of achievement uh, in terms of threats. Um, can you help the listener who might not be in very familiar with some of the, the, the progress? Like, How does that fit into some of the other classes of weapons and what, how they're used? Sure, sure. So in the realm of counter UAS, where there's been a lot of energy going the last decade or so, I think there's a, a pretty even pairing between what a what a high power microwave system can do and what a, a relatively easy built uh, laser weapon system can do with with the kinds of laser powers we've been see- we were seeing up until this scaling initiative which are in the tens of kilowatts realm as a matter of fact the air force has a program called tactical high power operational responder or thor that is uh is demonstrated counter uas capability at the high power microwave realm and then Multiple of these laser weapon systems have operated at single kilowatts, multiple kilowatts to be able to take out similar UAVs. Different mechanisms there. The the high-power microwave capability has a broad beam that can take out a a swarm, potentially, of uh, UAVs coming in, whereas a laser weapon is going to pick one at a time and and take them down with slightly different kill mechanisms. But there is somewhat of a parity there in, in what they're capable of doing. Go on a, up against a, a more difficult class. Something's moving much faster, so you have to target it quicker. Maybe has uh, a more hardened infrastructure around it or, or structure around it. it. Requires you to now take that up to a newer level of either energy for a high power microwave or power for a laser weapon. And it was it was the forethought of OSDR and E to invest in the scaling of these lasers to get them to that point where they can be competitive with other weapons such as defensive missiles or or like a uh, a seawiz type weapon for a close in uh, protection against these cruise missiles. I think you know a lot of the conversation today is probably going to focus more or less on the high energy laser side of uh, the capability. Right now you know, a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about lasers are are, are fiber lasers. Correct. And could you talk a little bit just you know stepping back on, from to provide a little bit of historical perspective? This transition from chemical laser to, to fiber laser to help us understand the progress has accelerated over 
decades as we are starting to understand what we can and can't do and what we need to do against emerging threats. Sure, certainly. We've been, Department of Defense has been investing in research into high-energy laser weapons since the late 60s, early 70s. And all through the 70s, 80s, and 90s into the 2000s, the primary research went into either basically into chemical or gas lasers. Uh, and there was some some great successes in that in that time frame. We had a, a megawatt class chemical laser at White Sands uh, called Miracle that was able to operate through the 80s and the 90s. And that was the last time we were at a point where we were doing demonstrations against fast-moving targets like this. There was also the airborne airborne laser, which had a, a chemical laser on a 747, which showed success against ballistic missiles and a few other major demonstration programs through that time, time period. But the department took a hard look at what it would, what was really needed to be able to support logistically the environmental impacts and the potential human risk of operating these large chemical lasers with the, the byproducts that came out of that and decided to, to step away from that technology. So we pivoted towards solid state or what's electric driven lasers. So now instead of having specific chemicals that you have to have that you'd need to replenish on a routine basis, uh, basically takes a big generator, but you plug into a generator and you're operating these electric lasers with just, just power and some amount of cooling to, to remove the, the, uh, the waste heat from them. We went through a couple iterations with some solid gain materials and, and some materials that were some alternate architectures on solid gain materials, but most of today's investment is going into the, the fiber lasers you mentioned there. And those kind of came out of the dot-com boom. Uh, we used fiber lasers to make sure we were able to bring uh, telecommunications across the sea, across the, the country. That technology then morphed into more powerful fiber lasers that could do welding and cutting. Uh, so they're operating in industrial environments. And that's where DOD started to get back involved in, in fiber laser technology. Any one given fiber laser today still doesn't have a lot of power, a couple kilowatts. But what we've invested in a lot over the last decade is different mechanisms to combine multiple fiber lasers into one laser weapon, whether that's through what we call spectral beam combining or coherent beam combining. Coherent would be a lot like uh, your community might be familiar with coherent arrays for RF, same sort of technology, you phase up the laser weapon, the individual lasers into, to look like a single single beam. Spectral works a little bit more like you take multiple colors of lasers and you combine them into a single beam. And we have two of the technologies that RE has invested heavily in and saw successes this year were each one of those technologies. So uh, we're, we're at a pretty interesting point on that technology. I think we're looking to maybe go further with it as well. And that is that has enabled a lot of the laser demonstrators you've seen over the last couple of years. Hello, everyone. I want to take a few minutes to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. To help me with that, I am pleased to be here with Sean Sanzelay, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Sean, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Ken. So to begin, BAE Systems is well known to our audience as a leader in EW, but Fast Labs might be a bit new. Uh, can you tell us how your part of the organization Fast Labs fits into BAE Systems? Yeah, sure. But before I get into that, yeah, BA Systems, like you said, has been a long, long-time leader in EW. In fact, we have a, more than 60 years of experience and our electronic warfare systems have flown on over 120 platforms and operate on 80% of the U.S. military's fixed-wing aircraft. 
Over 95% of the U.S. Army's rotary wing aircraft and many platforms fielded by our U.S. allies. VA Systems Fast Labs, which is the research and development arm of the company, is all about pushing the boundaries of what's possible. We're dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for critical defense and intelligence challenges with a particular focus on advanced AI, electronic warfare, and cyber technologies. More specifically, the part of Fast Labs that I work for focuses on advanced electronics that will enable next-generation solutions. In our work with leading DoD customers like DARPA and AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will advance future solutions, from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We often talk on this show about pushing boundaries in terms of keeping up with technology advancements. What technologies have been created out of Fast Labs and what problems are you solving on a daily basis for the warfighter? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, our FastLabs EW R&D team is on a, a mission to ensure that our defense customers have top-notch electronic protection, really kind of focusing on making sure that they have superior situational awareness on the battlefield. For example, we've developed technologies that offer the longest sensor range in the industry, lightning-fast threat detection, anti-jamming measures, and, and lots more. These are essential because today's adversaries are using increasingly agile and unfamiliar signals to counter EW systems and target platforms more effectively. Our critical EW technologies empower our warfighter systems to swiftly detect, identify, and jam both known and unknown threats. We achieve this using adaptive signal processing, machine learning, and intelligent algorithms. Additionally, we've advanced distributed EW systems which boost battle space awareness and coordinate across multiple EW sensors, platforms, and attack capabilities. These systems handle sensor tasking, data links, sensor fusion, and coordinated jamming, making them really invaluable for the warfighter and, and for our customers and for the DoD as a whole. That's a tremendous portfolio to keep track of. What can you tell us about what Fast Labs is working on now? Sure, yeah. Yeah, as you might expect, uh, there's, we're working a lot of cool things and we've got a lot of things on the horizon and I also can't talk about most of them here. But if you just take a look at a couple of like the recent awards that we've announced publicly, you'll see some of the interesting things and impactful projects that we're working on. For example, in December, the U.S. Department of Commerce announced approximately $35 million in initial funding for BA systems to modernize our microelectronics center in Nashua, New Hampshire. This was the first funding announcement as part of the Chips and Science Act, which is designed to strengthen American manufacturing, supply chains, and national security. The funding, along with internal investments, will help purchase new, more efficient manufacturing tools to mitigate supply chain risk, increase production capacity, and reduce our time to build products. Increased efficiency will enable a scale-up in production to meet the increasing demand for the DoD. And just before that, in November, we announced a $5 million award from the Office of Naval Research for the COALESCE program. COALESCE, in case you're not familiar, long acronym, but it stands for Common Architecture Amplifier for Low-Cost, Efficient, Swap-Constrained Environments. In this effort, we are advancing our gallium nitride integrated circuit solutions as well as our low-swap module electronics. The program's objective is to develop the world's highest efficiency high-power amplifier module in its frequency band. The RF modules will then transition to small form factor U.S. Navy payloads, enabling longer range and greater effectiveness in active electronic warfare applications. So then what is next for Fast Labs and BE Systems technology development? And if our listeners are interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? 
Well, without getting into too many specifics, like I said, only so much I can say here, but it's safe to say that we're going to continue to work with our partners and teammates in industry within academic research and, of course, with our customers to uh, assure that we're continuing to innovate for the benefit of the warfighter. If you're interested in finding out more, I encourage your listeners to take a look at basystems.com, a wealth of information on what BA Systems as a whole is kind of working on. Well, thank you, Sean, for taking time to join me. This has been fascinating to learn a little bit more about Fast Labs, and I truly do appreciate it. And now it's time to get back to our show. When you talk about going further with it, it seems to me that there's really no limit. You may, speaking in terms of possibility, there might be limits technologically in terms of where we're at now, but there's not a lot of limits on where direct energy can go in terms of its operational value, whether it's, you know, lethal or non-lethal activities, but you also have, you know, space and communications and even electromagnetic warfare. And there's a lot of different things you can do. It it can, uh, you know, we have space and counter space missions. What are some of the mission areas that are getting a lot of attention that directed energy weapons can have a positive effect on in terms of our ability to conduct operations in those missions? So so one of the real rewarding things I had with my hat on at Dahlgren as a portfolio manager was to take incoming requests from various parts of the services where they were looking at the successes we were having in the Navy with laws and other laser weapons being developed uh, and asking, hey, can you come bring some of that to my community? What can we do differently? One of those programs turned into the uh, Airborne Higher Energy Laser Program that is a uh, Air Force Special Operations Command capability or desire to have uh, funded by SOCOM to put a laser weapon on an AC-130. So that's a whole different target set than we were looking at with the Naval Forces, but we had a group of people at Dahlgren that were already doing work on the AC-130, and it was a natural combination for us to help them pivot to a a directed energy capability. I'll say that there's other organizations within SOCOM that have come to us with different questions as well. And we've taken a hard look at what we could accomplish. Sometimes we were able to say, I think we can get there, but it's going to take a little more development. Other times we said, we're still need some more development, uh, more development than I think you have the time for to be able to get to that capability. So being able to provide the warfighters some of the you know, truth in advertising and make sure we're we're not selling them something that they they can't use has been important over that time frame. So those are the sort of mission areas that, that come to mind immediately with that question is is some of the expeditionary efforts, some of the special operations efforts. We're trying to meet their needs. We understand they have very important needs. That requires us to reach a, a level of hardening that we were in, in environmental controls that we were, you know, even beyond what we were seeing shipboard. So uh, we're working through those efforts now. At the top of the show, you mentioned you know the Army has really accelerated its efforts, and I don't necessarily want to say leading the other services, but they're you know they're 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 certainly getting a lot of attention in terms of the progress they've made. Um, and obviously, you mentioned earlier that the Navy has a lot has had a lot of success in recent years. Uh, could you go through and kind of talk about? And you you just touched on airborne the airborne laser with the Air Force. What are some of the things that the services are looking at specifically moving forward here in 2023 in the next couple of years uh, in terms of what kinds of capabilities they're looking at to get into the field to help the warfighter from the Army, Navy, Air Force perspectives? Sure, sure. Um, I think the Army is probably the, uh, the, as I mentioned, kind of the, the, the one investing the heaviest right now. 
they've got four different, well, three different ground vehicles and a, and a non-ground vehicle capability that they're heavily investing in right now that are going to be creating combat-capable prototypes in 23 and 24. So the, the first one that comes to mind is called DEM Shorad, and that's on a striker vehicle. There's a lot of press in the in the in YouTube videos on that kind of a tactical level low power laser or moderate power laser 50 kilowatt class to be able to combat some of these UAVs and, and rockets artillery. With that 300 kilowatt capability coming out of OSDR and E, they're going to integrate that into a, a larger platform called If Pick Hell and take on some additional targets, and that's going to again going to be on a on a mobile platform. And then they have a high power microwave variant of that called If Pick. HPM, which will also be doing basically counter-air capability for for mobile troops. Uh, and then they have a portable high-energy laser, which they aren't tying necessarily to any platform. And that's a little bit lower power, 10 kilowatt class, and will be able to take out some of those UAVs at close ranges and provide the force with protection at multiple areas. The Navy continues to work on uh, a couple of its big programs. So this past year, they installed a 60 kilowatt capability on a destroyer. That's called Helios. Over the next year, they'll be bringing that that ship out of the yards uh, and doing operational work with it, testing, uh, getting it fully qualified. That's a big step forward in for the Navy in that this is the first laser weapon of the suite of eight or nine that we've we've fielded in the past that is actually integrated into the combat system. So it's not as much a standalone capability. It's really tied into how the ship normally does business. And that's going to be a, uh, a, something we need to do. And it was important to be able to accomplish as we look forward to any potential future programs of record. The Air Force, as I mentioned a minute ago, is 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 now let a follow-on to this, or, or maybe I didn't mention, but the Air Force is letting a follow-on to that Thor program I mentioned a minute ago called Bjorn. This is the, the, the hammer that Thor used. So this is to take the technology they built, which is a fairly large platform, counter UAS capability, and, and work to shrink that down and inject new technology. That contract was let was let in 2022, and uh, over the next year or so, we ought to see uh, some successes coming out of that. So they're they're focused on some of those high power microwave capabilities, and they continue to do some of the some of the best S and T work for high energy laser out there as well. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the integration of direct energy weapons and electromagnetic warfare. And so, I mentioned earlier that it seems to have accelerated in the conversation. Over the recent years, I was at a conference last year by the Director Energy Professional Society. We we attend their their conferences annually as as well as they attend ours, and the, the crosstalk between those communities has really stepped up in recent years, and it's really been great to see. One of the conversation pieces from a technology front will go to multifunction systems. You know, one we're no longer talking about single mission boxes. You know, that do electronic warfare. We're talking about technologies that do it. A number of different things, including EW, and directed energy also fits into that. And one of the conversation pieces: How can these communities come together earlier in the development process to to kind of integrate, so that when we talk multifunction systems, we can understand that we can create a system that includes EW and directed energy and other cap- like capabilities earlier in development, so that we're not trying to do deal with the integration later on at a probably a more costly point uh, in time. Could you talk a little bit about some of the progress that's been made to integrate these two capabilities and these two communities earlier in development? Uh, yeah, I think actually you mentioned coming to uh, some of the some of the depths conferences I've been attending. Your international name the symposium in the last couple of years as well. And in, in October, 
uh, or November, I was very pleased to see that Iparis was one of the vendors that had a had a booth. So they have probably the best I've seen so far in, in a capability to transition between high-power microwave and high-power and, and EW capability in the fact that they have software-defined solid-state radios that they're currently using today in a high-power microwave environment, but to be able to take and redefine the waveforms and the power levels or the ranges that are coming out of that same set of hardware to do an EW mission, I think is, is perfectly within the realm of, of possible. So to see them interacting with the electronic warfare community as opposed to just the direct energy community, I think is is kind of the first step I'm seeing towards that happening on the commercial side. Inside the department, I think one of the reasons I'm sitting at OSDANS today is to help with some of that conversation and to make sure that as we look at acquiring directed energy capabilities, we are doing a better job of integrating them with electronic warfare. There's mission sets that either one of the technologies, electronic warfare or directed energy, is a partial answer, but not a full answer. But when you put the two together in an integrated capability, you're achieving a much higher capability and you're actually taking out that threat as opposed to just potentially taking out that threat. And I've seen some work in the S&T environment on trying to do that early on, but I think it's an area that we need to continue to push on, not only in industry as uh, and through our our organizations, but also within DoD and within the S&T environment. So a very important capability because you're right on the on the back end is where if we're putting some sort of control system around these multiple weapons and we need to make them operate in in unison, that is a a more challenging problem. When we talk about you know capability development and earlier you, in discussing getting these systems out in the field, you mentioned that the systems have to be built to standards. And I wanted to touch on, you know, there's been a lot of progress on the standards front with open systems architectures. That's been a huge piece in terms of the evolution of uh, electromagnetic warfare technologies uh, and systems. Could you talk a little bit about how modular, modular systems open architecture has made its way into the direct energy community and and, and how is that community addressing the standards issue? Certainly, good question. So another area of investment from OSD Research and Engineering was to develop a a directed energy weapon system reference architecture. I was very happily led that effort for several years before I I came over to ANS and my my boss within ANS immediately told me to continue to advocate for that and recognize the importance of it. So I've been able to keep my hands in, involved in that. So in July, we released a first version of that reference architecture that basically breaks down either a laser or a high-power microwave weapon into specific modules that then vendors can then go after and and build within that module anything that they care to with their IP, and they can plug into other modules without giving up that IP to do greater design. Uh, or without requiring the government to come back and procure multiple modules to be able to replace a certain capability. So it's a, it's a it's a good design. One of the aha moments we had in the process of going through developing that reference architecture was that we were already naturally probably two-thirds aligned with the sensor open systems architecture organization that, that has been very active in the EW community, SOSA. So what we've been doing since July is to go back and engage with SOSA to, to kind of move this reference architecture under their governance structure. And then the one third of the capability that isn't already very aligned, we're going through and massaging those pieces to make sure they do align better. So 
in a sense, we are joining the EW community's open architecture efforts, at least with under under the SOSA capability. We've also looked at how well that architecture aligns with the Army's CMOS uh, standards, and we're seeing fairly strong alignment there. There's some more work to be done on that as well, but basically an opportunity here to show that you can be using the same open systems approaches uh, for electronic warfare or direct energy weapons. Uh, it's just in, in how you stack those modules and and what you put inside each one. I want to talk a little bit about the people behind it. Uh, you know, we we talk a lot about the capability. We talk, you know, the technology uh, and, and the science behind it. But the people are extremely important. And obviously, there's the warfighter but, and, and the engineer. One of the topics that we've talked a lot about is is workforce development and making sure that we have the right people in the right positions to, you know, from the lab to to the field to make sure that we can stay ahead of the curve in terms of uh, getting the, the right capabilities into the warfighter's hands. So could you talk a little bit about how the director energy community is tackling the recruiting and workforce development of the of the right people, and that that can be any number of different classes or categories of people or, or professions. But how is the director energy community addressing some of those struggles on on recruiting and, and workforce development? Yeah, I've I've, I've watched kind of a, a sea turn on that over the last couple decades of my career. I mentioned that we've been working in development of direct energy weapons since the seventies, and when I came on board, there were still some of those guys still around. There's still one or two. They're they're not all gone yet, but uh, there's been a need over the last couple of decades to really bring in some some junior engineers, train them up. And some of these programs that we've been doing have been very good at doing that. If you have some work in a laboratory, some work doing integration of a weapon system in industry, that's where you really get your knowledge, right, is, is by getting some hands-on work. We also ran into some challenges as the Navy was scaling up to be able to handle multiple prototypes at one point in time and in being able to 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 find that workforce, so we had to take multi-prong approaches. You know, we went out to uh, search search for industry to support. We searched through academia for new hires. We we went through our existing ranks within the laboratory environments and pulled in people that had relevant experience, or even people that just had a desire to learn and, and not relevant experience. It is a struggle, uh, and and one where we 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 will continue to work at. I, I suspect that's not uncommon for directed energy. In today's day and age, finding the right people for highly technical jobs is, is a challenge. So we we look for opportunities. Uh, you know, I, one thing that comes to mind is several of the people we pulled in in that time period actually came out of the electronic warfare community. So there was a a pretty easy transition there, and and, and the language barrier wasn't as strong. The in fact, it helped us to grow a little bit because most of them were coming from a warfighter perspective. So there's there's opportunities there to I think move back and forth across both communities as the need moves forward. Last question for you. So we're early into the calendar year of 2023, but the fiscal year, we're basically halfway through now. And unfortunately, you know, Congress didn't get that memo until, you know, late December and in terms of passing the defense spending bill. So, you know, funding for FY23 is a little bit late, but the defense bill included a number of different uh, funding initiatives across our capability area. One of the things that it included was uh, $1.1 billion to overhaul test facilities, including for directed energy. And I wanted to just touch on this uh, in terms of the, the role that testing has to play. And from your vantage point, 
when you, when you look at the this increase in testing, it sounds like, oh, $1.1 billion is a, a lot of money. But when you look at what it could be going to in terms of hypersonics, EMS, directed energy space, targeting, data management, all of a sudden, $1.1 gets spread very thin quickly. But thinking of it from directed energy perspective and, and, and test facilities and the testing infrastructure, what are some of the things that you think the directed energy community needs to focus on in terms of, you know, boosting or overhauling these test facilities or, or adding uh, some much-needed resource into improving the test capabilities in, in direct energy area? Two strong things come to mind when you mentioned that. Um, and there has been investment in, in each one over the last few years, but as we look at potentially fielding programs of record in the next couple of years, it's going to become very important that we, we continue that investment and grow even faster. First one is the instrumentation instrumenting the effects of, or the, the measurable effects that you need to have on a uh, direct energy weapon is, is not necessarily the same as, as any other kind of weapon we have out there. You can measure if something falls out of the sky, but to measure how much energy you have at a given range requires some pretty sophisticated technology. And to back out what that really means to a target requires important modeling and simulation capability. And we've seen some investment over the years. Uh, the Test Management Resource Center has been doing a lot of work in that area. The Center for Countermeasures in, in White Sands has been doing a lot of work in that area. But I think both those organizations saw some increased funding in this next year to continue that work and to dig a little deeper into it. Uh, the other the other area is just having range facilities that are cleared to do this sort of work. Right now, we have a few areas across the country that are comfortable and do directed energy work on a regular basis. They understand how to deconflict airspace and how to deconflict personnel and other things on the range. That's a handful of capabilities where we have hundreds of ranges we do live fire operations at, getting to the point where we have more opportunities to do live fire direct energy capabilities can require a lot of manpower, a lot of effort, re-overhauling operating procedures at these events, a lot of time making the the owners of those ranges comfortable with the risks associated and the mitigations we use to, to, to reduce those risks of operating direct energy weapons. Getting over those humps is, is another effort area that I think sounds a little bit more bureaucratic and, and probably isn't as flashy to a, to a congressional ad, but uh, is very important if we're going to be fielding capability in mass and training our warfighters to use that capability in the future. Well, that's all the time that we have uh, for today's episode. Chris, I want to thank you for joining me here on From the Crows. That's always great to talk with you. And I hope to see you again soon at uh, one of our conferences or one of uh, DEP's conferences here in the spring. But uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate the opportunity too. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. That will conclude this episode of From the Crows Nest. I want to thank my guest, Chris Berry, for joining me. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. FastLabs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research and development. We're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check us out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.